Hiya, I know this is not the best time to be sending this to you, but there never is a good time to say these things, and I apologize for not being able to tell you this in person. I have found the last few weeks of our relationship very, very difficult, I would even say traumatic for me, and so I have decided to end things between us. I have also been working some of this stuff out in therapy with me wreck for a while, and this has helped me to see a way forward for us. Our time together this last year has been immensely rich and rewarding for me, as I know it has been for you. I really meant it when I said at the time that you were the love of my life, and that I wanted us to be together forever. I have learned a lot about myself by being with you, and you have certainly put me more in touch with my shadow, which has been painful for me, but good overall for my future self-development. I thank you for all of this, Steve. Unfortunately though, I just don't think we are right for each other in terms of staying together as a couple. The next year is going to be a very stressful time for me. I have two counseling placements starting soon, and work is needing more of my energies which you know are limited. I would also really like to give more time on the weekends to building up my social connections outside our relationship, as well as having time alone for myself to do coursework, watch TV, read, or do other stuff. I don't feel like you are in a place to give me this space going forwards, so with regret, I am having to create that for myself now. I am hoping that one day we might be able to reconnect in some way as friends or colleagues, as I have really appreciated everything you have done for me, and I have also enjoyed so many aspects of our relationship, but this does not affect my decision to end things between us. Could you please pack up all my stuff at your place and post it to me? I can either put £30 into your bank account if you like, or if you prefer, I'm happy to keep paying for Spotify Premium Duo for the next 12 months, which you're more than welcome to continue using. I will miss you and Max a great deal, but I think this is really for the best as far as our future is concerned. Take care. Warmly. Nadia. And that was pretty much the last meaningful communication I ever had with this person that I have chosen here to call Nadia. The day after receiving Nadia's email, after trying to engage her in some kind of conversation via text, phone calls, and all the rest of it, um, I took myself and Max off to the Chilterns for a walk. It was an icy cold winter's day, just a few days before New Year's Eve. Grey and misly, the bleakness of that wintry scene uh, a fitting reflection for my inner landscape at the time. All violent feelings, writes John Ruskin in 1856, have the same effect. They produce in us a falseness in our impressions of external things, which he then goes on to describe with a term what Freud would later call projection, pathetic fallacy. Pathetic as in pertaining to our unreasonable emotions and fallacy because a wintry scene in the eyes of two people in love looks quite different to one in which we walk alone once more. At some point, I think it was in Flaunden Grove, I sat down under a tree and tried to listen to some music in order to distract myself a little. But of course, the only songs I could think of were some of the 700 or so shared ditties on our Nadia Stevlia playlist. 
being a sucker for punishment, I loaded that shared playlist up and set it on random shuffle, thinking I might hear via our shared account a message from her in one of these songs that would serve as a meaningful response to all my unanswered emails and texts. Maybe something that would shed some more light on this sudden and terminal decision. Thankfully, the song I needed to hear came up almost at once. Hey Siri. Uh-huh. Can you please play Nobody's Fault by Benny Sings? No. What do you mean no? I've been monitoring your first-person narrative for both grammatical errors, as well as internal consistency and cohesion, and the way you've started this episode doesn't compute. Two minutes ago you were deliriously in love with each other, and now Nadia is gone. What happened in between? I don't really... I don't really want to go into that here, because, you know, it's just the usual stuff that gets in the way of two people relating. And also, at this point, the only reason I'm really mentioning Nadia, apart from the fact that she was my last human-animal love relationship, is because without her, I would never have arrived at my cannabis Sabbath. If you like, Siri, I mean, read the Enneagram Institute's relationship matrix for the four and nine archetype. That pretty much says it all. Okay. Enneagram type four, the individualist, with Enneagram type nine, the peacemaker. This can be, paradoxically, both a very comfortable and yet exciting relationship pair. Enneagram fours and nines are both withdrawn and private, sensitive to the feelings and needs of the other, and empathetic to the suffering of others. Both can be tender-hearted and highly sympathetic to the suffering that they find in the world and in each other. Both want to find a deep connection with the other, and yet, both also want a certain degree of autonomy and insist on a very real degree of privacy. Both fours and nines can be highly creative, and as a pair they enthusiastically support the other's creativity and give the other a good deal of space in which to develop their talents. Both are idealistic and want to connect deeply with someone, feeling that they are on a search for their soul mate, the one person in the world with whom they can completely connect and be themselves. Fours can make nines become more intense and expressive about how they feel, while nines can allow fours to feel understood and accepted for who they are. Fours are good at naming feelings and pinpointing emotional states. Nines are good at creating an atmosphere of non-judgmental acceptance. Nines may even enjoy the emotional storms and dramas that fours occasionally get into, feeling that it adds spice to their life together. A lot of the pleasure and passion of this couple is non-verbal in the depth of the understanding that each has for the other. The biggest area of conflict between fours and nines is that each tends to react differently as stress increases. Fours become more emotionally volatile and demanding, while nines become more disengaged and impossible to get through to. Fours can feel too unstable and dramatic, unpredictable and moody for nines, while nines can feel too unresponsive and emotionally inert, unsatisfying and uncommunicative for fours. If conflicts and tensions increase between them, nines can shut down more and more so that communication stops, and they give fours the subtle message that they don't want to hear their reactions or deal with their feelings. Fours can feel that talking with nines is like playing tennis with yourself. There's no one to hit the ball back, and there is too little relating in the relationship. In time, this cycle can threaten or even result in termination of the relationship. 
there you go. So I started listening to that song by Benny Sings called Nobody's Fault. But because it was so cold and icy out there in the forest, even though I'd brought a blanket to wrap around myself and Maxi Jacks, for some reason, one of my Bluetooth earbuds popped out of the ear where I'd wedged it and fell to the ground. I looked down to see it give a little hop and a skip and a jump a few feet away, but when I started looking for the tiny black object, it was nowhere to be found. Where had it gone? I started to pour through the sodden leaves and twigs, the mulch and mud and various other bits of fragmented organic matter lying scattered around me, all of it in various stages of partial decomposition. But the small Bluetooth headphone, which a moment ago had been snugly ensconced in my skull, was nowhere to be seen. I got up and looked both closer and further away from where I had been sitting. Maybe it had bounced back in its final trajectory or gone somewhere else. But no, nowhere to be found. After about five minutes of fruitless searching, I sat back down again and just stared at the forest floor in total and utter bewilderment. I hadn't had any cannabis that day, but had brought my vape along so as to partake amongst the beloved flora and fauna of the Chiltern Hills. So before continuing my search, I took a couple of puffs and then sat there for a while, staring at the ground, hoping that my gone-astray earbud would suddenly reappear and join me once more. As the THC kicked in, everything seemed a little more scattered and blurred, infused with a delicate clarity and certainty from some other immaterial centres. I felt, as I often do, the kindness of my green goddess or green goodness, especially on that day, a kindness which allows for all of life's questions and occurrences to potentially take on a different hue, just for a while, a more benign pathetic fallacy, if you like, one of mildness, gentleness and serenity in response to whatever raw and unfiltered grief might be coursing through our being at any given time. It was in such a state that a small insect crawled over my left hand and I felt its company not just as an approach or a passing by, a moving off or away, and nor just as a nameless clump of cells going about its business, but rather a relational moment that felt kind and loving. A poem presented itself to my mind, a poem we had learned by heart together, one that had been a kind of touchstone for us, a poem that we had agreed our relationship would always be nourished by, a poem I'm quite sure we would have recited to each other as one of our vows of commitment if we'd ever made it to the registry office. It's a poem by the Palestinian-American Naomi Shihab Nye, and it goes like this. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go 
so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow, you must speak to it, till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is you I have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So I recited our poem for a while and had a few more puffs of Gigi whilst still trying to accept that both Nadia and it would seem my Bluetooth earbud were gone, gone, gone. I looked again at my phone to see if she'd message me, something I would do many times a day in the following year, and then looked back again to the patch of ground where I'd spent the last ten minutes combing and sifting through its meaningless debris. And suddenly, there it was, as if it had been there all this time, my lost earbud. My relief was profound. I popped it back into its socket and began listening to the song, a song in which I am always reminded of a particularly joyful and sweet memory from the year we spent together. The two of us walking through these very same hills on one of our weekend meetups, blissfully and incontrovertibly in love, or so it seemed to me at the time. Both of us enjoying our Nadia Stevlia playlist played through two sets of Bluetooth earbuds from one phone. Ah, oh, I just love the bass on this one, Nadia says, pausing the music momentarily to communicate this recognition to me. In what way? I ask her. I don't know, it's just, it's just the perfect bass line for me. You know, just, just so happy and bouncy. I just love it. It's like the happiest, bounciest thing in the world. And to prove a point, she starts singing the bass line at me. And very soon we are walking along together, hand in hand, echoing each other's attempts to capture this baseline, this happiest, sunniest baseline in the whole world, whilst also trying to make each other laugh. 
After about a year and a half of mourning Nadia's departure, of trying again and again to get in contact with her but to no avail, after finding out from Mirage that he'd seen her a few months later with the new beloved at Barnes Farmer's Market, I decided that this moment of enjoying one of our songs needed to be the one moment I held on to when, when my mind went into some of its darker and more shadowy places. Later, I recognized that I needed to use this moment also as a cue for all the gratitude that I do have towards Nadia for introducing me to the Enneagram and, at least for this project, the importance of creating a somewhat formal, structured and ritualized Sabbath to be spent in the company of our loved ones. This is what I most want to remember about Nadia this is what I choose to hold on to. Wait, I'm, I'm gonna go with you. I love you. 
1991 was my first play. You know, you, you know, you're always trying to get things to come out perfect in art because uh, it's real difficult in life.